pray. Just the final phrase, Lord, of that song. You will be forever mine. Because of Jesus, in Jesus, through Jesus. Thank you for that amazing grace, and may that amazing grace never lose its amazingness with us. May we never get over who Jesus is and what he's done. And I pray now that as we open your word together, that you would speak through your spirit to your people, using me as your mouthpiece. May you love your people right now through me. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Thank you, team. I love singing with you all. I never, I never get past that. I encourage you to open your copies of the Scriptures this morning, please, to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10. If you don't have a Bible with you, you will find a Bible, a church Bible, near you in the hymnal rack of the pew in front of you, or if you're sitting in the front row of a section in the hymnal rack of that uh, underneath the pew on which you are sitting. It's page 1006 in our church Bible. And as you're turning there, let me just, there's something that God has really been impressing upon me over the last 24 hours. Now, I do preach from a manuscript. You may not know that. Hopefully, you can't tell that by how I I preach and when I preach, but um, just over the last 24 hours, God has been God has been just impressing something upon me. And when I ask this, because I like to get you involved at the very beginning here, it's going to sound a bit morbid. You're like, okay, what are you going to say? My wife's like, okay, what are you going to say? Will you play along with me? All right. How many of you would like to know? When you're going to die, I told you this is morbid, all right? When, when you're going to die and how you're going to die. How many of you would like that information? Not many of you are raising your hands, and I'm not raising my hand. Um, what would you do with that information? How would that information affect you and impact you? Sometimes, sometimes it's the obvious things in Scripture that we tend to miss. Joanna is redecorating our kitchen. And she put some things up on the cupboards and cabinets and walls over the last week. And I went nearly a week without seeing what she had done. (laughs) And my response was, baby, you put them exactly where they all should be. And so they're so obvious that I just missed it. And you know, it can... I'm still digging out of that hole, but (laughs) I'm trying. And it can be that way in our study of Mark's gospel. But it's in scenes like we are in this morning that clarity smacks us in the face. 
and says, don't miss it. Because Jesus came to earth knowing when he is going to die and how he is going to die. Imagine what that must be like. Every movement he makes, every word he says, every step he takes, he is moving all of history to this moment we read about this morning, this moment that when we read in Mark chapter 10 this morning is now just a little more than a week away for him. And he says, I am going to die. This is why I came. This is what it will look like. This is what it will feel like. This is what it will be like. And maybe we should right now just pause and sing that great old children's song, Yes, Jesus loves me. Wow. He doesn't quit. He doesn't give up. He doesn't try to take a detour around the cross. He prays in the garden, Father, if it's Your will, let this cup pass from me. Because He is faced with feeling the weight of our sin for the very first time in His life and everything within His holy soul recoils against that. Because the weight of our sin is so immense. And yet, kneeling there, bowing beneath the load of our sin, he raises his eyes to heaven and he prays, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. I will drink the cup of your wrath in full to the dregs. This is our Jesus. And let's read how this all begins to go down a week and a half before the cross. In verse 32 of Mark chapter 10. And they were on the road, that is, Jesus and his disciples going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, it's like I've said before, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Jesus, we are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten 
heard it, that is, the ten other disciples heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is our King, and this is his word for us this morning. Now, how many of you this morning would agree that as you grow older, there are fewer things that shock you? As you grow older, there are fewer things that shock you. I mean, that doesn't mean that we ever get to the point that we're unshockable, because One of the big shocks I've experienced in moving from rural southern Illinois to Chicagoland three years ago is the amount of wildlife I see here. I mean, we were surrounded in rural southern Illinois, Jersey County, Illinois. We were surrounded by cornfields and bean fields. I mean, literally, our backyard, our side yards, everything. And we never saw the amount of wildlife we see here. Deer? Coyotes, skunks. In our first two years here, our dog Ruby was skunked twice in our own backyard. I had no idea that Cook County was such a zoo. I was told that before moving here, but I never assumed it was so true. I've been shocked. And one of the dangers that we face in our walk with Jesus is that we become so familiar with Jesus that he no longer shocks us. We've heard it all before. Jesus healing the sick, walking on water, raising the dead. It's all standard operating procedure for Jesus. So let me ask, does Jesus still shock you? Because one of the things I've been noticing as we've been walking through Mark's gospel is that Jesus' disciples are so often amazed by Jesus and shocked by Jesus. Not just because of what he does in shutting down storms and casting out demons and feeding large groups of people with just a few loaves and a few fish. They're also blown away by what Jesus says. Because it's so counterintuitive and countercultural that it seems counterproductive. Jesus is constantly flipping conventional wisdom upside down and turning it inside out. He says things like being last is about being first, or being first is about being last. And he says the way up is down. And you save your life by losing it. And wealth, true wealth, isn't about having, it's about giving. But Jesus isn't saying all of that just for shock value. He's saying that because, and here's the big idea for today, in God's kingdom, things work differently, and so as God's people, we think differently and live differently. The radical statements of Jesus make a powerful difference in the followers of Jesus, like right here in Mark chapter 10. And it all begins on a seeming, in a seemingly insignificant way on a seemingly insignificant day. Now, 
I'm looking at the clock because there's something I want to say, but I'm not sure I have time to say. So let's just take a vote. Should I say it? Those of you who don't want me to, you heard who said yes, all right? So you can meet them out in the lobby after the service, but this is a nondescript day. When, when the disciples are following Jesus at this point, they don't know anything is different yet. How much of Jesus' ministry with these disciples happens in the normal course of everyday life, on the way from one place to another? How much of our days are spent that way? Normal, everyday days where nothing significant seems to be happening on the way from one place to another. And it's interesting here that Jesus takes this opportunity on a rather insignificant day to preach the gospel to them. Don't waste your insignificant days. Don't waste the time you spend between one place and another. Preach the gospel to yourself in those moments. That's what these men need, and that's what we need as Jesus and his disciples are on the walk. Not just a walk, the walk. For the disciples, there have been lots of walks with Jesus, but there has been no walk like this walk. Something's different now. Something's changed here. Because on this walk, Jesus isn't a, doing a walk and talk with the disciples. He's leading out in front of the disciples. He's walking alone. Silently, but resolutely. This is the walk in which Jesus is fulfilling the prophecy of Isaiah chapter 50 verse 7 where we read that the Messiah will set his face like a flint to Jerusalem and the suffering that's coming. And that's why the Greek word here tells us that the disciples, as they see the silhouette of Jesus walking in front of them, leading them, they are amazed and surprised simultaneously. This is a wow moment and a woe moment. This is a surprised, speechless moment. It's like what happened a few months ago when Buffalo Bills football player DeMar Hamlin collapsed on the playing field and went into cardiac arrest. I had the game on in the family room and I was working on a project in the kitchen and Joanna came into the kitchen where I was working and said, I don't know what just happened in the game, but there's an ambulance on the field. Somebody has collapsed, and it doesn't look good. And so I ran into the family room. Okay, I walked into the family room. But for the next 20 minutes, I could not look away. I was amazed. And simultaneously surprised. I'd never seen anything like it before during a football game. And that's these disciples here. They couldn't not watch as Jesus is courageously and confidently leading them to Jerusalem. It's an unforgettable wow moment and woe moment, but it's also an oh no moment for them. They aren't just amazed, they're afraid. Something about seeing Jesus walking out in front of them so resolutely turns back the clock in their minds to what Jesus said back in Mark chapter 8. Guys, 
You don't understand what it means that I'm the Messiah. I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to suffer many things, and I'm going to be killed, and after three days I will rise again. And when they remember that scene, it jogs their memory forward now into Mark chapter 9, where Jesus again rips a messianic title from the Old Testament book of Daniel and says, as the Son of Man, I'm going to be delivered, given over into the hands of men, and they're going to kill me. And after three days, I will rise again. And although the disciples on this road, on this walk, don't fully grasp those words, they are remembering those words, and the pieces are beginning to fall into place. The picture is coming into focus. Jesus is a dead man walking right onto enemy turf and into enemy territory, into the religious epicenter of Israel, Jerusalem, where the scribes and Pharisees and chief priests are waiting. Jesus is either crazy or suicidal, or he's a man on a mission. And he knows that his men are struggling. He knows that they are fearing. And so he slows his pace and he waits for them to catch up with him. And he pulls them to the side of the road. And the walk becomes the talk. This isn't a talk, it's the talk. He's had many talks with his disciples, but no talk has been as important and significant as this talk. And the disciples must see that on Jesus' face. I mean, he just, he looks different. He's, he's zeroed in. He's totally focused. There's a holy tenacity emanating from him like they've never seen before. And so he has their attention like never before. It's one of those scenes where if you're in the moment, everything else around flatly fades into the background. Time stands still. The people walking by, the disciples don't see them or hear them. The spring wind that's blowing, the disciples don't feel that. They, they, they are weary and hungry from the walk, but they forget that in this moment. All they see is Jesus. All they hear is Jesus. Guys, what you're seeing today is what I've been saying to you. We are going up to Jerusalem Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. Jesus, I, I think we get what you're saying. Uh, but what do you mean by we? What does this mean for we? For us? We are going to Jerusalem with you? It's like when our kids were younger, there were times I would take one of them by the hand and I would say, we are going to your room. And the whole way up the stairs to their room, do you know what they're saying? Daddy, why are we going to my room? Why, Daddy? What's wrong, Daddy? I could hear the fear in their voices because of what they think going to their room means for them. That's these disciples here. 
That's the why that's driving their fear. Where he is going, they will go too. They will share in his sufferings, not in a redemptive or saving way. We don't come to the disciples' table this morning. We come to the Lord's table this morning. They won't team with Jesus in dying for our sins, but they will die because they're following the one who dies for our sins. It's all becoming clear to them now. We are going to Jerusalem. Jesus says, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him, and they will kill him. And after three days, he will rise. What's scary to the disciples is that there is a certainty to all of this. Notice the verb tenses that Jesus uses. This is not Jesus saying, death is a real possibility for me. Like this might happen, you know, like some of us on vacation. Well, we might do this or that or might visit this attraction or attend this event. We're just going to kind of play it by ear. By the way, how many of you are like that on vacation? You like to play it by ear. I'm that way. I'm married to someone who likes every moment of every day planned out. And we can still be married. We can still get along, even on vacation. But Jesus isn't playing it by ear here. This is his mission. This is the plan. This is the destiny for Jesus. It isn't about what might happen or what could happen or what may happen. This is about what will happen. All of it. And that's why there isn't just a real certainty to Jesus' words. There's a real specificity to Jesus' words. Each time, have you noticed, each time Jesus predicts his death, he fills in more of the blanks for his disciples. And here for the first time, they learn that it isn't just the Jews who will play a role. The Gentiles will. The Romans. That's why Jesus will be mocked and spit upon and flogged. And then Romans, the Romans will do to Jesus what they do to common criminals. They will nail him to a cross. But it isn't just that Jesus knows what is coming. It's that he's in control of all that's coming. That's why we take special notice of those words, I am going to be delivered. I'm going to be delivered. I'm going to be given over to by my Father. There's a real intentionality to this. Jesus will not die by accident. He will not be forced or, or, or coerced to the cross. He won't be trying to make the best of a plan gone terribly wrong. No, he will die as a lamb being led to the slaughter. He will die as a willing sacrifice in complete control of everyone and everything that will bring about his death. And that's why with certainty Jesus says that his death isn't the end of the story. Life is. Because after three days, He will rise from the dead. The one who dies for sinners will live for sinners forever. And with those words, Jesus turns conventional wisdom upside down and inside out. Because in God's kingdom, triumph rises out of tragedy. 
Redemption out of sacrifice, glory out of humility. And those upside-down, inside-out truths are intended to radically affect the way that we think and the way that we love and the way that we live. Jesus here is, is leading us to embrace a different set of values and to live by a different set of rules and to be guided by a different set of principles. Jesus isn't just telling us what this means for us. He's showing us what this looks like for us. Following Jesus looks like dying to myself, to my ego, to my plans, to my goals, to my ambitions. That's why 2 Corinthians 5 verse 15 says that Jesus died so that those who live would no longer live for themselves. It's so counterintuitive that the disciples miss it for a third time. When two of them, brothers, the sons of Zebedee, James and John, pull Jesus aside for what they think is a private conversation, they have one big ask for Jesus. But they don't lead with a question, notice. They lead with a demand. Teacher, We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. It's like when your teenager wants a new iPhone 14 Pro. And so they pull you aside. By the way, they wait for the perfect time. And then they pull you aside and they say, Dad, I need to ask you something. And I realize it's a pretty big ask. So I just want you to say yes before I ask. (laughs) Now, I wasn't a dad for very long. Before I learned that you don't answer yes to the question before you hear the question. Which is why Jesus says here, guys, what what do you want me to do for you? I love that Jesus asks that. Not just because he's wise, but because he's patient and loving and kind. I mean, he's just unpacked for them the cross that's coming for him. And their immediate response is not to bow in worship of Jesus, it's to demand something from Jesus. It's so cold and callous. Hey, Jesus, let's just keep this on the down low between us because it's kind of a big ask. Grant us to sit, one of us to sit at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. You know, Jesus, we're talking about when you take the throne in Jerusalem and you set up your kingdom We want the best seats in the house, front and center, VIP passes. You down with that, Jesus? Wow, does that shock you? But you know, that's not all the wow here, because Matthew tells us that mom shows up. That is, Mrs. Zebedee. James and John's mom is right there with her boys and that she kneels before Jesus at this point and says, Jesus, my boys would really like for you to reserve them the best seats. They're really good boys, Jesus, and they deserve nothing less than the best from you. Wow. But you know, this isn't just about a mom and her two boys because we know this mom's name is Salome. And we know that Salome, in comparing Scripture with Scripture, Salome is the sister of Mary. Yes, 
that Mary. Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so we have an aunt and two cousins playing the family card on Jesus here and saying, Jesus, remember that blood is thicker than water. And Jesus says, you want the best seats? You want to ride shotgun in the kingdom? Here's what you don't know. You don't know that the price of those seats is your life. You've got to drink the cup of suffering, the cup of God's wrath that I am going to be absorbing and drinking. You've got to be baptized with the baptism with which I am to be baptized. You've got to die. So are you sure you know what you're asking? Oh, Jesus. Jesus, we know. We know all that. We're in on all that. We can do all that. But we know the rest of the story, don't we? We know that the very night Jesus is betrayed by a kiss and arrested by soldiers, that at the very first sign of trouble, Nine of Jesus' disciples, nine of them, nine other disciples other than James and John, will abandon Jesus, leaving him to suffer and die alone. And Jesus knows that too. And so he says, listen, guys, I'm not the one to ask about where you'll be seated in the kingdom. Those seats aren't mine to give. My Father assigns those seats, and who sits there isn't any of my business or yours. You see, guys, greatness doesn't take the shape of front row seats. It takes the shape of a cross. Because in God's kingdom, the path to glory is paved with sacrifice. It's about giving yourself to others by giving yourself up for others. So let me ask, if you had one big ask of Jesus this morning... What would you ask? What would that be? What would be the first thing on your list? Maybe you had a rough time getting your kids ready for church this morning. So maybe your ask would be, could you make my children easier to parent, especially on Sunday mornings? Or could you make my husband or wife easier to live with? Or my boss easier to work with? Could you make my health better? Or my bank account bigger? What would be that one thing you want? Would it be any of those things? Or would it, would it be what Jesus prays in the Garden of Gethsemane on the night of his betrayal and arrest? Father, not your will, but mine. Not my will, but yours be done. You see, what we want God to do for us says about, uh, a lot about us and whose kingdom we're living for. And that's true right here in Mark chapter 10 because there are 10 other disciples who are eavesdropping on this conversation between Jesus and James and John. They've heard every word and they're hot. They're angry. They're livid. The Greek word here tells us that they're bent out of shape. They're coming unglued at James and John. Do you see in this text how destructive it is to want to be king of my own kingdom 
You see, politicking for position and power and prominence never promotes peace. It always produces conflict and chaos. Listen, pride is lurking behind every marriage conflict and every family conflict and every church conflict and every work conflict. Pride is always pushing me to the center of my world, wanting me to play by my own rules and do my own thing and be my own king. That's these disciples here. All of them. Their kingdoms are colliding with God's kingdom. And so Jesus huddles them up and gives them all a front row seat for the answer to their problem. Guys, it's what I've been saying all along. You think God's kingdom is about the glitz and glamour. You think it looks like and works like the kingdoms of this world where rulers are always flexing and greatness is about about having others doing your bidding. But listen, it shall not be so among you ever. It can't be in God's kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. It's intentionally graphic language. In God's kingdom, it isn't about the best seats. It isn't about being up front or at the top. You've got to flip all of that upside down and turn it inside out. To be great is to become small. To be first is to be last of all. There is no task beneath you because there is no person below you. And so you're just as comfortable scrubbing floors and cleaning toilets as you are in that top floor corner office. Your favorite questions to ask are, how can I help, and what can I do, and where can I serve? That's the top. That's where the glory is. That's where freedom is found. Whoa, whoa, Jesus. Freedom and being a slave? Yes. But there's only one way that can happen, and this is the biggest shock of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Freedom and slavery. Yes, that's a word picture that the disciples would get because in the Bible, in Bible times, the ransom was the payment to purchase a slave. Jesus dies to purchase us, to free us from sin and death and the devil. But listen, listen carefully. And this transformed this text for me this week. On the cross, Jesus doesn't just pay the price. On the cross, Jesus is the price. He is the ransom. He gives Himself 
to purchase us from the slave market of sin and to win our eternal freedom. And so the only way to become a servant like Jesus is to be freed from your sins by Jesus. That's why Jesus says in John 8 verse 36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. You know what that took? You know what that meant? It meant Jesus setting his face like a flint to the cross and foregoing every detour offered him by the enemy. And there on the cross, he himself, 1 Peter 2, verse 24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. What must that have felt like? What must that have tasted like? What must that have been like to bear our sins and to pay the penalty by becoming the price required, the ransom? He bears our sins in his body on the tree so that we can die to self. We, being dead to sin, would live to righteousness. Free to serve. Free to be a slave. Because by his wounds we have been healed. And that means that Romans 10 verse 9 is true. That whoever confesses with their mouth that Jesus is Lord. And believes in their heart that God has raised him from the dead. You will be saved. Are you saved? Has the ransom been paid for you? Are you a member of God's kingdom? Come to him today. He will save you. He will free you. And when you trust in him, he will turn your world upside down from the inside out within your heart. So here are the two takeaways for today. Because when Jesus brings you into his kingdom... There are some radical things that are now true for you. Things that enable you to embrace a Jesus kind of of serving. And the first is this. You are a child of the king forever. You're a child of the king. As a servant, you're still a child of the king forever. That's your identity now. It isn't about who the world thinks you should be or wants you to be. It's about who God says that you are. You are no longer a slave to this world's definition of success or beauty or wealth. You're free from that because you're secure in the success and beauty and wealth of Jesus. You're a child of grace. And so you are now free to serve people rather than demand from people. You're free to give to people rather than take from people. You're free to love people rather than use people. And it's all because, secondly, you are loved to the max by Jesus. That's why we come to our Lord's table this morning. To remind ourselves of Jesus' death. It's at the cross that we begin to understand how deeply we are loved. And through his cross then, we become conduits of his love 
to others. You see, it's the cross that makes the difference for us and for these very men in Mark chapter 10. That's what changes them from me first men to Jesus first men. Men who aren't any longer about building their own kingdoms, but now about building Jesus' kingdom. Men who had just a few months from this scene will turn the world upside down for Jesus. Men like James here, who will finally get how deeply he is loved by Jesus and will become the first to pay with his life for following Jesus. It's what John in this scene will write as he thinks back on the night of Jesus' betrayal and arrest, as he writes in John 13, verse 1, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. Not just chronologically, but quantitatively, to the max, to the brim. As a child of the King, you are loved with that same to the brim, to the max kind of love. A love that enables you to think differently and live differently because in God's kingdom to which you belong, things work differently. And so your big ask of Jesus becomes what Jesus asks the Father. Lord, your kingdom come. Your will be done. Right here, right now, in my marriage, in my parenting, in my career, in my school, in my university, in my whole world. But first, Lord, your kingdom come, your will be done in me. Make me a servant like Jesus. Because I've been freed by Jesus. Amen. Father, may you take your truth and plant it deep in us, shape and fashion us for your glory as we prepare our hearts now to come to the table to remember and celebrate the price paid by Jesus to free us as the ransom, as the price. In his name, amen.